Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Hear now God's Word. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Ephesus was a great city, a cultural center, and like all great cities, within that city there was a power struggle. The power to influence, the power to provide, to protect, and to deliver. These demigods have really been with us from the beginning. There has always been a struggle for power. In fact, it begins with the youngest of children who contend for power in the home. Who is in charge is always the question. Who will prevail? Will the two-year-old prevail or will mom prevail? That transfers to the city. That transfers to the world. It's really the struggle all the time. As a parent, if you haven't learned, learned that, then you have already lost the battle or else you are in the process of losing it. But the power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is a power that exceeds all others. Thus it was, and it continues to be, a threat to other existing powers. Jesus not only rose from the dead, but He ascended to take His place at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. There He rules over the entire cosmos. He's ruling right now. This includes nations and individuals. So the big big picture as well as the details, the individuals. Paul's prayer is that Christians will come to see and to recognize that this same power is available to them Every day. His prayer is that we'll come to see and comprehend what we might otherwise overlook. As things are going on all around us, we might be tempted to fret or be anxious, to be overly concerned, and to forget that God is still in control. God has power over all the events that are going on around us and in us. And we will need new eyes to see the scope of what He has given to us, 
and what he has done for us. This power had already begun to work in the Ephesian Christians, even as it has begun to work in you. But Paul's prayer is is that it will not stop there. You hopefully can look back and see the progress of God's grace in your life. What he's already accomplished, what he's done. But Paul's prayer, and again my prayer this morning for you, is that this is really just the beginning. That there is much, much more to come. And so he wants to set before them the vision of where God's plan is ultimately going, as well as the power of God to execute his plan uh, and uh, at the right time. It might appear that the principalities and the powers and the dominions are in charge of the destiny of the world. In other words, it may appear, if we watch the news, that it's all about the politicians. It's all about what they had to say today. Every word is parsed and considered and what is its impact on the world. And, and we want to know what they think and what did Washington do. But I can assure you that the next president is weak. As Psalm 2 puts it, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. All of the worldly powers are put under his feet, to quote Psalm 8. They are footstools. They, that's where he rests his feet. And we are his body. We are his hands and feet to accomplish his mighty plan. That's amazing that God, God takes nothing and uses it to take down the, the, those things that claim to be something. Listen to 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, that's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. See, it's not just that God is in heaven and Christ is in heaven ruling with power, but Paul goes on to point out that you're part of this too. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who who became for us the wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. And so Paul offers up a prayer for the Ephesians. Up to now, we've had this one long sentence that Paul has given laying out the benefits of being in Christ. And now he's going to pray. Acknowledging what God has already done through the Ephesians 
and also asking God to grant them further progress in their sanctification. And so in verse 15 and 16, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. Commentator Brian Chappell points out that the cause of Paul's thanks is the Ephesians' faith and love. The object of their faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the object of their love is all the saints. This is what separates them from the world and what unites them to one another. Everyone has faith in something, and everyone loves something. What we believe in and what we love become our our objectives. Those are the objects that we direct our faith and love to. Our objectives, our goals, this is what we live for. It's your faith in Christ that makes you uh, what you are. That is all the difference. You are different. You are better than you would have been without Christ. As broken as we all are. As Paul uh, writes in chapter 2, we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works. That's the goal. This is, the fir- this is first seen in the church where it's not always easy to love the other broken people that God brings together. Just look at us. We're a mess. Why did God put you with these people? Because He knew that you needed to learn to love them, to love every single one of them as broken and as annoying as they can be. And thus, you too, like the Ephesians, labor, as it says in chapter 4, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. I love that word. It's a better word than patience. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another, how? In love. I don't love you because... God says, I love you in spite of. And that's the kind of love we're to have for each other. I love you in spite of bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or laboring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's going to be hard work to do that. We will need to continue in both faith and love because these have not been perfected yet. We have more to give. Nevertheless, there is so much to be thankful for. It's easy for any parent or pastor or in the case of Paul, an apostle, to regularly offer correction to those who are under their charge. It's our job to train, to equip, to otherwise prepare for the challenges ahead. And we tend to notice failures more than successes. The successes are not what's creating today's problems. In that process of oversight, it is entirely possible that we lose our sight and fail to see the blessings and the progress of those that are under our charge. We can forget to be grateful. We can forget to be 
thankful for what we have. And so Paul begins this section by expressing his gratitude to the Christians at Ephesus. And so I too am reminded of how blessed I am as a pastor to have this congregation. You are, by and large, a pleasant people. Kind, gracious, merciful, abounding in good works. There is nothing like a trip around the block to make a home seem more beautiful. And I want to thank all of you for your faithfulness to Christ, for your love for one another. I know that you are not without your struggles and your sins, but what a gift from God to be in a place, to be in a family like this. God has blessed us with a beautiful place to meet. Nevertheless, the building is not to be compared to the beauty of a congregation of saints, wherever they meet. I'm even more proud of you as your pastor. I'm deeply grateful to God for you and thankful to you for your great service to his kingdom. I love you. Our giant foster home has been a place of refuge, a place of instruction, a place of rejoicing, a collection of redeemed sinners with much to learn and much to be thankful for. As I survey the individuals that God has brought together, I see a trophy case of God's grace. A disparate group of pilgrims who are pressing on in their high calling in Christ even in times of grief, perhaps especially in times of grief, to be surrounded by such a faithful company of saints is a great comfort and an abiding peace. The celebrations that we have had and the worship that we have offered together has built a genuine community for life. And I, like the Apostle Paul expresses here to the Ephesians, am grateful to be a part of of this little outpost of the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, this is what we always have to say, right? It's what Paul says. It's what parents say. I love you, but... Nevertheless, we still have work to do. We have many flaws and deficits. Yet, with eyes of faith, we also see that our fellow believers are robed in the righteousness of Christ. We do see much spiritual fruit being born in our midst. And this gratitude must lead us then to pray for one another, thanking God uh, for, for the church, and then also interceding on her behalf. And so as I prepared this sermon, it reminded me to stop and pray for each of you by name. To intercede on your behalf. To ask for your continued growth in knowledge and faith and love and to request wisdom from God for special circumstances. Private and public prayers are being offered up on your behalf that we might even have more to be grateful for. And so let's look at Paul's prayer here. Starting in verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and the inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward those toward us who believe. Paul is praying for something more than a transfer of information. He is asking God for a work of the Spirit. And that work will result in wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. And we should not be afraid of that language. This is a mystical work of God. That is, it's that which is meant that is related to the supernatural agencies of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom comes from ordinary things, from living among the people of God. Knowledge of God is revealed in the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Enlightenment or understanding is given in the context of corporate living, not living in isolation from God's people. So it's in the church, it's in that context that the Holy Spirit takes those ordinary things and Paul is saying, Lord, take all those things and make them live. Make them extraordinary. Make them greater than the sum of the parts. And so they recognize, indeed, it's ama- or excuse me, it is amazing how much we all suffer from ignorance. We certainly need to know things. That's why people and families who prosper the most over the years are those who just routinely and regularly are dedicated to their church and the commitments that they've made and are regular in their participation in what the church is doing. It's not a smorgasbord that they pick and choose. Well, I like this, and I don't like that, and I'm sleepy this morning, and I'm going to kind of take it or leave it. And, and, but the ones who are consistent, who just kind of, as a friend of mine, one, a pastor said one time, I'll take a mule over a racehorse any day. And you can pick out which one you are. Okay? Thoroughbreds are pretty... Okay, but they often break their legs in the dash to the finish line. Give me a plow horse. That's what we need. They get the work done. They get it in day in and day out. Not exciting, but reliable. And so, it's not just on Sundays, but the entire life of the church. It extends to their hospitality, to their prayers, to their service, to their money, to their time, and their sacrifice. They recognize that they're part of something that is bigger than themselves. And little by little, they grow. Almost sometimes imperceptibly, like watching the grass grow. You leave town for a week this time of year and come back and you notice it. But if you just look out the door and watch, you don't see anything happening. But Christian growth is that way, just steady, day after day after day. And this is an indication that wisdom is present and growing. I trust that you realize how faithfulness in little things always mounts up to big things. This is how tools are added to your toolbox. This is how those tools are sharpened. This is how, as Paul will write in the next chapter, the pastors and the teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man or to a mature Christian, to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. It happens right here in this ordinary place. And it happens in our homes. And it happens little by little, year after year. This is where we learn to see further and deeper, to see through and past our trials, to understand God's work, to remember His promises. This is where we learn. This is where we grow in Christ. This is where we are given faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is where we're given hope, the hope that's set before us in Christ over and over and over. All of this is a gift from God, but it does not just fall from the sky. The church is His gift to each of us. This is where we receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him and what the rest of the things that Paul is praying for here. This is not simply about God dispensing truth, which He does. It is also about having our eyes enlightened or opened. That's a supernatural work. You see, it is entirely possible to be surrounded with profound truth and for those around us even to perceive it and for us to miss it. That's called spiritual blindness. It's possible for someone to sit in church for a lifetime and never receive wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It is possible to hear with our ears, but not with our hearts. And so if you are never moved, if you are never cut, never wounded, never excited by what you hear in church from the Word of God, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. You need the Spirit of God to awaken you, to enlighten you, to move you. Imagine some poor man who suddenly receives a massive inheritance and upon being informed, his response is to yawn. I pray that you will be able to see what is yours in Christ. When you do, your depression, you know that depression you struggle with? It'll flee. You're not looking, you cannot tell me you are looking at Christ and what He's done for you and you're depressed. Now, maybe your depression is keeping you from looking at Christ. Your joy will flow, your family will be amazed. Sometimes you feel hopeless, but you know what? You're not without hope. You're only failing to see the hope that is yours in Christ. You're not looking at the right place. Stop looking at yourself. Look at Him. He is the one that overcomes the world, not you. Well, not you directly. Hear what the Apostle John says. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In the next chapter of Ephesians, Paul says that before we knew Christ, that we had no hope. And we were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off 
have been brought near. You've been brought in by the blood of Christ. Your story, no matter how dramatic it is, and we have some dramatic stories. I don't, I mean that in the most serious way. There is a lot of drama in a fallen world. There is a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of misery. But I don't care how dramatic your story is, it has a happy ending. And everything is working to that end. You have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. In fact, Paul says you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You don't live there anymore. You live here. Not only that, you have been adopted and given a full inheritance in Christ, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Do you know how much is in your account? He continues, verses 19-23, through And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above the principalities and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So is this just a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by, wishful thinking, naivete on the part of Christians? Is this talk of hope and overcoming just a religious crutch for weak people? Well, if God is who the Bible says He is, then He is truly the Almighty God. He spoke the cosmos into existence. And He superintends it constantly. Every atom of it. He is omnipotent. That is, He is potent or powerful to accomplish all His holy will. He is executing His plan. And the good news is, you're part of the plan. That power, Paul says, is directed toward those who believe. He doesn't stop by simply using the word power, dunamis, but rather he piles up descriptive terms to exposit that power. And he will refer to God's power many, many more times throughout the rest of this epistle. There are power claims, of course, all around us as we started talking. You know, in government, it's your house. But there is only one who is almighty. Psalm 75, 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will among the army, army of heaven, in, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? 
So can you see through the headlines? Can you see through the elections? Can you see beyond your current problems and your challenges? Do you know who's in charge? Do you remember whose plan is being executed? You see, it's easy for us to become so focused on the narrow and limited crisis of the moment that we fail to look up and see the big picture. Thus, it's easy to lose hope. But the gospel is all about hope. That's why it's good news. Hebrews 10.23 admonishes us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins, which, remember, is your biggest problem. It is your problem. It's really your only problem, your sins. And He satisfied that. And redeem me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life. And makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto Him. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is a sovereign power that is above all earthly power, and it is the power that has been working through the church. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the object of His love and affection. And you are part of His church. Christ died for the church. It was His blood that purchased the church. And it was the church that was given gifts from above. And it's the church, the body of Christ, that God has empowered with His Spirit, which marches through history. The church militant, which is the, that's the church that's the object of His love. That is His bride. The one, His beloved. The implications of this central truth are powerful and profound. Please don't greet it with a yawn. God is reshaping, He is recreating the world through the church. As imperfect as she is, this bride has some blemishes. Jesus said, I plan to present her to my Father without spot and without blemish. I'm working on that. You should have seen her when I found her. She's come a long way. But I love her. And I give myself for her. And so it is critical that we stop seeing ourselves simply as individuals who are hoping or trying to get to heaven. The sooner we see that we've been made part of something bigger than ourselves, the sooner we fully engage the body of Christ. 
the sooner we see ourselves as part of this great mission to rescue the world and redeem the world, the sooner we will know the peace that comes from from fulfilling our calling and our role. If I ask you today, what are your goals? What do you hope to accomplish with your life? What are your dreams? Is that mostly about you and your things? Or is it mostly about other people and what you can do for the kingdom of God? Maybe some rethinking needs to take place. Maybe you're unhappy because you're pursuing things that can never make you happy. And our role is to be part of this. We are to never operate alone. We are part of the church. You're part of the church. Brian Chapel notes that there can be no mavericks and no deserters. And so I ask, do you love the church? I'm not asking, do you go to church? Or do you like this or that about church? I'm asking if you're sacrificing yourself for the church. Sacrifice. That's what love calls for. That means doing things that you might not want to do, that aren't easy to do. That means recognizing that you have duties and responsibilities to the other members of the church. Going to church and being the church are two different things. We are members of one another. All over the world, historically and currently, Christians gather together at great peril to themselves and their families. They could justify staying home or not participating, but being part of the church is more important even than personal safety and convenience. The church is the fullness of Christ, who is the head over all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. And the, and the faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that is regularly demonstrated for all the saints in a variety of ways. I do pray for each one of the members here that you would grant them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. May their understanding be enlightened so that they will see the hope of their calling and the magnitude of their rich inheritance. And may they realize more and more your great power toward them. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. We are so grateful to know that Jesus rules over every principality and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. It is an assurance and a comfort to know that you have put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, and that he fills all in all. Thank you for making us a part of that same church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Revelation 21 describes the completion of the work of God, the work that he has already begun in his church and in us. It is his gift to us which enables us to see how the story ends. To not only know the answer to the big questions, where did we come from and why are we here, but also, where are we going? We start each week reviewing our mission plans, looking at the map, and finding our place. You know that you are here, little X. And looking ahead to our final destination. What do I need to do this week to make progress, to get closer to that destination? No other trip we ever make in our life is certain. But this one is. And with that certainty, we can move forward no matter how perilous the sea, no matter how treacherous the terrain in front of us is. He will never leave us or forsake us. Being confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Are you confident of this truth? As you eat and drink this memorial meal today, I pray that you will remember what Christ has done for you and why He has done it. He loves you. He died for you. He is at work in you, and you are part of His powerful plan to make all things new in Christ Jesus. Jesus tells us here in this text in Revelation that He is everything. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega, the beginning, the end, and I think we can safely assume the middle. He is everything. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage and wisdom and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church. Send laborers into your harvest and give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. What a heritage you have given to your church. 
We have the gospel in all of its truth. Teach us to appreciate that godly persons were willing to sacrifice their lives for these treasures. Keep us in the truth and make us instruments for its preservation for generations to come. May we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we as the true church manifest your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And we ask your blessing, Lord, upon our day, upon our rest, our feast, our fellowship. Thank you for the gift of this Lord's Day. And we pray that you would bless us now through all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen.